Would you open God's precious holy word to Ephesians chapter 5, verses 21 through 33. I knew we were coming to it, and now it is here. The first three chapters of Ephesians are positional. It's the doctrinal part of Paul's teaching via the Holy Spirit, how we are positioned in Christ from before the foundation of the world. The last three chapters are practical. This is how, now that we know we're positioned in Christ, here's how we live. Instructions for Christian living. So from those verses, I want to bring you a message that I call husbands and wives, Christ and his church. I don't like to start with jokes, but I'm reminded of something. Little girl read the fairy tale, Snow White. She ran to her mommy and she said, let me tell you about Snow White. The Prince Charming came and kissed her back to life. And uh, her mother said, how did the story end? She said they lived happily ever after. Her mother shook her head. She said, no. They got married. <laughs> now, the first answer ought to be true in all Christian marriages. They lived happily ever after. And we're given instructions about living in the Bible. They're timeless. They fit into every category of every age. No century, no decade, regardless of politics or modern thought, we are never as Christians, as believers, we are never ever exempt from what the Bible says. It is timeless. It is always and forever true. And God teaches us through his word, how we best can live to the fullest in this life. To To seek in any way when we are given imperatives. Now, let me back up. I've told you since Ephesians 4, everything that's been said was an imperative in the Greek text. It's a command. It's a command of God. It's not a suggestion. It's a command, an imperative. That's very important. This passage is full of imperatives as well. It's not a suggestion. This is what we're supposed to do. This is how, as Christians, we're supposed to live if we live the fullest and abundant life, most abundant life that we can. So we keep that in mind as we consider the teaching that is given to husbands and wives in this text. When God said uh, to walk, for example, in humility, it was a command. To walk in unity, it was a command. Um, uh, to walk being unique, to walk uniquely from the world, that was a command. To walk in love, that was a command. To walk in light, that was 
uh, a command to walk in wisdom. That was a command. We've seen all of those in, ver in chapters uh, four and five. And now we've come to the end of chapter five. So here we go. From the first part of the text regarding wives, let's take four things from it. All right. Number one. If we look at verse 21, it is a segue into what is said about wives. Be submitting yourselves to one another in reverence of Christ. There is to be a general attitude among believers, an attitude of self-denial, an attitude of self-discipline that we defer to others. We walk humbly. We defer to others and we are not to be arrogant or in any way to be exalting ourselves in some way above, above other people. Generally speaking, there is to be an attitude, a reverent attitude of submission to other believers. Now that's the segue into the next thing. Wives, and in the context of the text in the Greek, it, it, uh, it's, it's like a dangling participle. What happens here, it, it dangles on what he says here in verse 21, be submitting yourselves. The same thought in the text carries through. Wives, be submitting to your own husbands as to the Lord. The kicker there is as to the Lord. Remember, this is an imperative. This is not a suggestion. Now, there's a lot that goes into this, and we're going to look at it, God willing, as we complete the complete text. Wives, be submitting to your own husbands as to the Lord. Now, the implication there is the husband is to understand that on earth, in his family, with regard to his relationship to his wife, he is a type of Christ. That's what she submits to. Now, this type of Christ and the behavior of the husband, we'll see in the next slide. So we keep that in mind. As to the Lord. So then, this submission is a submission to her husband as she would submit to the Lord. In how many ways do we submit to the Lord? Every way. There's no way that as believers, we would knowingly refuse to submit to the Lord. We submit to his headship. We submit to his authority. We submit to his leadership. We submit to his protection. We submit to his care. We submit to his love, his sacrificial love. We submit to his guidance. We submit to him, and I could go on and on. We submit to Christ in every way. This is the imperative to the wives. Wives, be submitting to your own husbands as to the Lord. Second thought is about, the first thought 
is about general humility among believers, self-denial and self-discipline. That moves now into the family and specifically addresses the wives, this submission, and it is a submission to her husband as to the Lord. Now, she's not to submit to every man. She doesn't have to accept the authority over her of other men. Only her husband. And if you'll notice, if you'll notice the emphasis, your own husbands, that's a very emphatic statement in the Greek text up here. This means that she owns her husband. He is her possession. And as her possession in the Lord, she submits to her own husband. Doesn't owe that submission to anybody else. She can't claim possession over any other man. This is how she submits. Now, it's a, it's a divine directive. It is in the imperative in the Greek text. There's no arguing that. So the first step of a Christian life within the marriage is the wife submits to her own husband as to the Lord. Therefore, implied, he is to be her type of Christ. Third thought, for the husband is head of the wife as also Christ is the head of the church. He is himself savior of the body. In a spiritual sense, in every way, how has Christ, how has Christ taken care of his body, the elect, the church? Of course, he is the head of the church. In the family, the husband is head of the wife. Now, if you ever, if you ever want to think of a distorted human, think of someone whose head and body don't work together. When I was in high school, I had a chemistry teacher whose son was the head, the chief top dog of neurology at UAB. Very busy man. There were a handful of us in, in his class who, and this was in the 11th grade, who aspired with thoughts to be a medical doctor. I was among them. And so he arranged for his son very busy guy, neurologist, brain surgeon. He arranged for his son to come and, and speak to us about what he did. So in those days, it was, I don't know if he had a 16 millimeter or an eight millimeter, but he had his projector and the screen set up and we met in the banquet room of the Rich Hotel in downtown Gadsden. And we were seated and he was talking about the importance of the coordination of the, of the neural system, the, the nerves 
throughout the body. And if something especially was wrong with the center, which was the head, the brain, if something there was wrong, then several other things would be wrong throughout the body. There had to be a connection. There was a young boy, 14, 15 years old, I can't remember, who had a problem and he had suffered from this problem for a while. And his problem was that his arm just constantly thrashed all the time. He would, in his sleep, he's con he constantly thrashed about with his right arm. Well, obviously he couldn't live a normal life like that. So something was wrong. Enter the neurologist. He knows that what is controlling the movement has to start with the brain. And so he goes up and he does all these tests and he shows us on the film, the operation. As I recall, this kid was awake. He's doing all this stuff and this kid laying there and his arm is thrashing about. And it turned out that they had discovered a pocket of air under the folds of his brain in a certain place that controls that part of your body. And they were going to have to release the air out from his brain. So they removed that part of the skull and there was his brain. Kid laying there, arm thrashing about. And Dr. Davey was the neurologist. Mr. Davey was my chemistry teacher. He took a long, thin, hollow needle, began to insert it into a certain place in his brain. And when he hit the pocket, the kid's arm dropped. He took the needle out, replaced the cap on his skull and did all the stuff to put him back together. Fast forward the next part of the film. The boy is sitting on the edge of his bed. His head is wrapped up. You couldn't, there wasn't any audio with that thing. So the doctor was telling us what was going on. He says, now we're going to tell the boy to move his arm, raise his arm, make a fist, do all of these things. And the arm worked perfectly. Having released the air out of uh, the brain, uh, the, the arm worked perfectly. There had to be a perfect coordination. And I know, I know immediately what wives are thinking. Yeah, my, my husband is full of hot air. <clears throat> and it just makes me want to hit him all the time. Perfect coordination between the head and the rest of the body. Now that boy would have been like three years younger than me, two years younger than me, something like that. I didn't do a follow-up, but the doctor did tell us before we left that there was no reason why this boy now could not live a perfect life from then on. His arm worked in coordination with the rest of his body. Here's the point. If there's a disconnect between the head and the rest of the body, there's a distortion. Something is terribly wrong. Now, the kicker again here is that Christ is brought into the equation. How does, how does Christ oversee his church? With love, compassion, 
Not leaving anything to chance. Taking care of every detail. Watching us. Guiding us. Being with us. Fulfilling our lives. Providing for our needs. The kicker here is. The husband is to his wife. A type of Christ. So in his ability. To the best of his ability. In a physical earthen sense. He is to care for his wife and to appear to her in the same way that Christ appears to the church, namely filled with sacrificial love, compassion, and care, filled with forgiveness, overlooking anything that might be, man, you know, I'm, if I consider my life day in and day out, There are so many ways and days and things and times that I know I'm not very attractive to Christ. But that doesn't matter to Christ. He took care of me. He's taking care of me. He will take care of me. He will never leave me. He's always there. The husband is his wife's type of Christ in the world. I'm going to do my best to do for you in a physical sense to the best of my ability what Christ does for his church. For the husband is head of the wife as also Christ is the head of his church. You see, you can't break those sentences up. You have to take the whole complete thought. He is himself savior Of the body. He cares. He protects. He saves. He forgives. He guides. He provides. He's the Savior. This is what the husband is on earth to his wife in Christ. But even as the church is Subjected to Christ, so also wives to their husbands in everything. That's about as plain as it can be. It it cannot be any plainer than that. I've probably told you the story. It's a true story. I forget the organ meister's name. But there was a baron who lived in Germany and he had his castle and he was a magnificent organist. And he had the finest organ in the world at the time built. And I believe the organmeister was in France. And so he had his organ positioned in the castle which overlooked the village below so that the sound of his organ would please and entertain the villagers. It was one of those magnificent pipe organs, the finest, biggest, greatest in the world. And one day the music stopped. Week by week, month by month, year by year passed. The organmeister, the baron, had brought in 
repair men from all over Germany and no one could fix it. Word finally got back to the French organmeister who had created and built that organ. And he was the master of masters when it came to organs in that day. And he said, you know, I'm going to go and visit this baron and see if I can help him out. Bagged up his tools, made a, in those days, um, 19th century, I think, made a rather difficult Germany, uh, a trip to Germany from where he was in France. And he made his way to the castle and he went up and he knocked on the door. And the attendant came to the door and he said, I would like to see the baron. Would you state your business? It is regarding the repair of his organ to which the attendant replied, sir, let me just save you the time. We've had dozens of organ meisters from all over Germany to come in, the, the best men that we know of, and none of them have been able to repair the organ. His reply to the attendant was this, I am the man who made, created, and installed the organ. You cannot say that it is irreparable until you let me come in and see what I can do. So with that, the attendant let the man in, took him up to the organ chamber. Before the day was over, the organ was playing again. The baron heard his organ playing, raced up the steps to the top room where his organ was, and astonished, he said, how can this happen? Who are you? He said, I'm the man who made the organ. And only the man who made it could fix it. This is what this passage of scripture is teaching us. There would be no marriage at all. There wouldn't be anything called marriage. We would be like, Dogs and everything else, if not God had instituted the role, the institution of marriage. God created it. The first thing for the good of man in that sense, in a social sense, that God did for us. And how he did it and his purpose for it is going to be quoted here, God willing, before we complete this text. If something goes wrong in a marriage, the only one who can fix it is the one who made it, namely God Almighty. So now we move to husbands. Now husbands, there was one slide that dealt with wives. There are two slides <laughs> that deal with husbands. Let's just go ahead and tell our wives our part's tougher than yours. <laughs> Husbands love the wives. How? Just as also Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Mm. 
gave himself up for her. She wants a new necklace. I want an AR-15. If I do this right, she gets the necklace. I already got a dozen AR-15s anyway. He gave himself up for her. Whatever he considers himself, whatever he thinks of himself as being invested in, he is first required to give that up for her so that he might sanctify her. As also Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Now, this is speaking of the church from their own and it is to be it is to be a lesson for what the husband does for his wife. So now here's what Christ does for the church. So that he might sanctify her. That is, set his church apart from everybody else. Everything around the church is fallen and dark. Everything else around the church has spiritual problems and other problems that, that belong to the world. So Christ sets his church apart. He sanctifies her. This is what the husband is to do to his wife. She is above all women. She is above all people. He has set her apart above everything else. He has sanctified her. What else does Christ do for his church? Having cleansed her by the washing of water by the word. I do not go through a day completely clean. Bad thoughts, hateful things. But here is a call for discipleship and Bible study. How is the church cleansed when, when it's so hard to live a life of holiness and sanctification? We're, we don't have to be saved all over again. We just be cleansed by the washing of the water by the word. It cleanses us. It helps us to understand our sanctification. So then, here is the husband. He is the spiritual leader of his home. And he engages with her in the washing of the water by the word. Now speaking of Christ and his church. Number three. So that he might present to himself the church in glory. Not having spot or wrinkle or any such things. That she would be holy and unblemished. Daily sanctification. Continual washing of water by the word. So now Christ will present to himself the church in glory, no spot, no wrinkle, holy and unblemished. 
Now, I know what you're thinking, guys. How am I going to stop the spotting and the wrinkling? Well, this is a spiritual thing. And she is always to you what the church is to Christ. A wonder of glory. Through all the while in this world, spotless, spotless, unwrinkled, unblemished, beautiful, set apart, and holy. And there is none who can compare to her. The same love that Christ has for his church in the best way a husband is to have, in the best way that he can, a husband is to have with his wife. The bottom line is, I will do whatever I have to do that my bride, my wife will be presented in glory. And unblemished. This is what husbands in their love for their wives are to do. It is like Christ has done for his church. So we keep on with husbands. So husbands ought to. I misspelled that. That's the first mistake I've made this year. Right. So husbands ought to love their wives. I translated it and I, man, my fingers get ahead of that apple thing that I'm working on. Ought to love their wives as their bodies. I love my body. You can tell. I feed it. I nourish it. I'll look at it from time to time. With my clothes on. That's as far as I want to go. And I keep looking. I'll look at the mirror. See, old men, I don't know, this God is so, he has a great sense of humor. I'm really going to enjoy sitting down and jamming with Jesus. You see, this hair leaves you. But he adds it here, here, and here. So when I go to the barber, the, the barber does more to my ears and my eyebrows than to my head. But I'm not going to stop feeding it. I still have a little routine that I go through every day. It doesn't show up well, but that's because I really don't want it to. And if a joint hurts, and I want to take something because it hurts. Okay, we love our bodies. If you don't, <laughs> something wrong with you. It's the only one you have. Ought to love their wives like they love their bodies. Now in the Greek text, that's not how you love the wife's body. That's how you love your own body. The other just kind of falls in line. We'll see here in a minute. 
The one loving his wife loves himself. She is me. For no one at any time of himself hated his flesh, but he nourishes and cherishes it, just as also Christ does the church. For we are members of his body to nourish. The Greek word up here is ectrepsy. It, it means, it means to, it's not just food. It speaks of nourishment to the highest point of maturity. So a man is to always be cultivating his wife in the way that she requires or needs. This is what he does. He nourishes her. And I really like this word. In the Greek, he cherishes her. <laughs> Thalope. Thalope. Are you ready? Here's what it means. He cherishes her. It means to warm with your own body. Ha! Oh! There are those times. Pat is still doing all the stuff that she does because I just don't do it, I guess. I don't know. Sometimes I'll be in bed and already asleep. And it'll be wintertime. And she will have been scurrying around the house for an hour or two barefooted. And then she'll come and get in bed and I don't know it until she sticks her feet up against the small of my back. After the blood curdling scream and then scraping me off of the ceiling, she says, I'm cold. Duh. Why didn't you wake me up and just tell me? It's also a word that is used of a mother bird who gathers her little chicks up with her wings and warms them with her own body. It's, it's, to, it's to nest, to provide security and warmth, to give what is needed to make this person feel absolutely secure and comfortable. This is what Christ does for his church. This is what we're to do for our wives, to nourish, to cherish. Why? Because Christ does this. We are her type of Christ. For we are members of his body. This is what he does for us. This is what he teaches us that we are to do for our wives. It's not about what she can do for me. It's all about what I can do for her. Now that love is the love defined here, the love of a Christian husband. That love that comes forth from that man 
makes it very easy for her to be submissive to that man. This is God's design. There's no better way. I told you we'd get back to the first of it. Here we go, to the first of the Bible in Genesis. Because of this, a man will leave his father, and the word means to abandon completely, will leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, to leave and cleave, to abandon. And the word to be joined speaks of, a, of, of glue. And the two will be one flesh. We just gorilla glue ourselves to each other. One flesh. Let me tell you, here's the way God made male and female created them. And then he talks about how he made man in his image. Male and female created he them. Man, the word means mankind. Mankind generally. Well, not generally, specifically. The reference to mankind is the reference to how a man and a woman are joined together in marriage. A man is a man, a woman is a woman until they are joined together and they become mankind. Male and female created he them. So the man abandons the home that he grew up in. And he is joined to his wife. And when that happens, a new person exists, a new personage within mankind. It's different. The two become one, and together they are a different person than before. They are one person in the Lord, they are joined. Now, this is a great mystery. But it speaks of how it refers to Christ and his church. A wonderful mystery. That the type of Christ and his church. Exemplified in the Christian home. And specifically the relationship between the husband and his wife. But you, however, according to an individual. Now, he says, okay, this is the lesson of Christ in his church. It's a great mystery. But now let me speak to you individually. Let each of you love his wife as he loves himself. And let the wife respect her husband. Well, there it is. And that didn't hurt at all. Yet. <laughs> Would you bow your heads and close your eyes? Jesus Christ is the Son of God, and He came into this world to save sinners. I want to speak to you in making this appeal, in this invitation, to tell you that you have, all of us have three needs that are very basic. Number one, we need to be saved. Only Christ can save us. If you came here without Christ and God is calling you into his salvation, you will not mistake that call. Number two, once we've come to Christ by faith, we should be obedient to Christ. And in obedience to Christ and his commission, 
come to believer's baptism, to be baptized as a believer, which is a great testimony to others. And then finally, we need to plant our lives in a Bible-believing, Bible-teaching church. If you have one, two, or three of those needs, listen, here's how we handle our invitation. As you exit the sanctuary, there are two rooms that you'll see. Each room will have a deacon and his wife, and they're waiting to talk to you and pray with you about any of those things. Father God in heaven, thank you for your instruction about how Christians are supposed to live. How practical that is. Oh God, help us to be obedient to your word and to the imperatives, to the commands that we find all the way through. And now, Lord, as we are dismissed, I pray, oh God, that you will fill our hearts with a commitment to obey you in every way and then use us for your glory that we may be examples to others, that we might testify to others to your glory and the glory that is his and that he produces in his church. Father, bless us in all ways as we leave here and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for coming. God bless you.